It is amazing to think that, to know that actually. Uh, the reading this evening is the uh, first 10 verses in Galatians chapter 6. Drawing to a close in the letter of Galatians, the first letter that Paul has written, probably the earliest of the New Testament uh, literature, uh, probably within 15 to 20 years of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. They, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There were jokes going around uh, not so long ago. They still make a reappearance if you buy one of those joke books. Give children for Christmas and go groan again. Uh, you know those jokes about change? How many people does it take to change a light bulb? There was one of those about churches, Baptist. How many Baptists does it take to, take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> but actually, we are always changing. I came across this uh, rather entertaining um, kind of recognition of things that have changed. Sorry if you, this doesn't apply to you. It was uh, kind of a reflection on, uh, on things from the, the 1950s. You may not uh, have been alive at that era. You may have, but I'm sure you can understand what it's driving at of things that have changed. Pasta had not been invented. This is in Britain, clearly, in the UK. Curry was a surname. A takeaway was a mathematical problem. A pizza was something to do with a leaning tower. Bananas and oranges only appeared at Christmas time. All crisps were plain. The only choice was whether or not you put salt on it or not. A Chinese chippy was a foreign carpenter. <laughs> Rice was a milk pudding and never ever part of dinner. A Big Mac was what you went out in when it was raining. Brown bread was something only poor people ate. Oil was for lubricating, fat was for cooking, tea was made in a teapot using tea leaves and never green, coffee was camp and came in a bottle. <laughs> Cubed sugar was regarded as posh, only Heinz made beans, fish didn't have fingers in those days, eating raw fish was called poverty, not sushi. <laughs> None of us ever had heard of yogurt. Healthy food consisted of anything edible. People who didn't peel potatoes were regarded as lazy. Indian restaurants were only found in India. Cooking outside was called camping. 
seafood was not recognized as food. Kebab was not even a word, never mind a food. Sugar enjoyed a good press in those days and was regarded as being white gold. Prunes were medicinal. Uh, surprisingly, muesli was readily available. It was called cattle feed. <laughs> Pineapples came in chunks in a tin. We'd only ever seen a picture of a real one. Water came out of the tap. If someone had suggested bottling it and charging you more than petrol for it, they would have been laughed at. And the only ever, th and one thing that never, sorry, and the one thing that we never had on our tables was elbows. It's true, isn't it? History lesson right there. Um, why do I mention that? Because Paul is all about change. The, the change he's talking about is not about preferences. It's not about certain choices. That would be legalism. The, poor, the, the challenge that Paul has been uh, charting in, in these uh, chapters in the church, letter to the church in Galatia, are about a change that comes through Jesus that only he can bring. It's about the gospel. It's about renewal. It's about freedom. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened by a yoke, again by a yoke of slavery. And he's, he charted in chapter 5, as we saw last week and the week before, what that looks like of the temptation, the... Um, the predisposition of people, you and I, to err towards wanting to fulfill obligations, legalism, rules, because we know where we are. It makes kind of life easier if we know uh, what's in and what's out. But it's not freedom. That Paul has again and again said in terms of the Old Testament and, and all that has gone before that has foreshadowed and drawn us to Jesus, has been laying the foundation, the preparation, has been drawing us inexorably to the wonder of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is to say that he has come and he fulfills all of the old. And because he fulfills it, we are set free from being under the law and set free from it but into living life. It's not to say that the law is bad, far from it. The law and the Old Testament is good, but it leads us to Jesus and to the freedom that he brings. Part of the controversy, just as this sort of slightly recapping in case you haven't been uh, at every part of our series, is that, that there were some people who said that, that the freedom that Jesus brings is just too big in its scope. That to deny our roots, to deny the Jewish roots, is kind of a rejection of all that God had given. And actually, we should still maintain things like festivals and food laws and, and dietary restrictions and, and observing certain things and not others. And Paul says, no, no, no. You can't find freedom that way. Jesus has come to deliver us, to rescue us, to set us free. And that always faith comes from believing and trusting in the saving work of God, not in fulfilling obligation. It's by grace that you've been saved, not works, so no one can boast. But the freedom that, that Paul recounts, life by the Spirit or gratifying the desires of the flesh, chapter 5, 
That freedom involves change. Change, I hope, that we embrace. I hope that we choose. Someone comments that, that if we just opt on the rules-based life, I don't know if you were brought up in, a, in an environment or have seen a strict Christian background, have you? That this is what very much defines you do this, you don't do that. It's very much clear, black and white. Someone commented that, that, that children at some point perhaps abandon that faith and casting aside rules and belief is as easy as casting aside a too small jacket. Legalism makes it easy to abandon. Grace isn't because grace is wide and good and freeing and life bringing. That the kingdom of God, as Paul would say, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Someone phrased it again like this, to talk about the wonder and the fullness of grace and what God calls us into, the change that he desires in the Spirit. He says, at first glance, legalism, following rules, following religious ways, seems hard. It seems a burden. But actually, freedom in Christ is, is actually harder. It sounds a bit weird. It's relatively easy not to murder. I make no judgments on you. But, uh, but it's harder to reach out in love. It's, it's easy to avoid a neighbor's bed, perhaps, but it's harder to keep a marriage alive. It's easy to pay taxes, but hard to serve the poor. When living in freedom, we must remain open to the Holy Spirit for guidance for that, that ongoing step-by-step, -step, the walk that he talks about in chapter five. It's about living. It's about the adventure. It's about living from the inside change. A low view of law leads to legalism in religion. A high view makes one a seeker after grace. And the ultimate effect of legalism is to lower one's view of God, whereas actually what is spiritual is to raise that. You see, the, the freedom that, that Paul has described, and we'll get on to the impact of this, is, is a freedom for doing, a freedom for living, a freedom not just from uh, kind of the constraints of the law and being uh, oppressed by it and unable to fulfill it and, and being trapped by it. Uh, and that's the wonder of Jesus. We are freed from that, but freed into life. And that's the challenge. I want to show you a little video, uh, just um, by way of a visual illustration. You may have come across it before. Uh, if you want to scratch, you're uh, able to do so because it's got fleas in Everyone's a bit like going, oh, you know, actually. But this is a little interesting fact you may or may not have known about fleas. Thank you. Training fleas requires a glass jar with a lid. The fleas are placed inside the jar and the lid is then sealed. They are left undisturbed for three days. Then, when the jar is opened, the fleas will not jump out. In fact, the fleas will never jump higher than the level set by the lid. Their behavior is now set for the rest of their lives. And when these fleas reproduce, their offspring will automatically follow their example.
Isn't that amazing? I mean, who'd want a batch of fleas in your living room for three days? Those fleas become habituated, they become encultured, they become defined. They can actually jump a lot higher. If you've ever had a pet, you might know that. But their environment and what they learn, the culture that they live in, the space, the environment, defines their ceiling, their expanse. Grace and what Jesus calls us to expands that entirely. We were made for more. When we talk about the freedom that we live into, it's not a try harder, must kind of like work harder. This is the spiritual life that the Holy Spirit has put within us, that Jesus always intended for us as people to not be constrained by the culture in which we live that says dog eat dog or you're only good to those who are nice to you or we live by cause and effect or, or the, you know, the cultural mores of our time. And indeed, uh, we're, we're also in danger of being constrained like fleas in a church environment. Isn't that a profound statement that was said at the end that, that the fleas learn from their parents how high they can jump? Wow. We're called, sisters and brothers, in the freedom that the Spirit gives, this freedom that God has intended, that the change maker, Jesus, who's established a new kingdom and that his kingdom is coming and it will be the most, and it is the most awesome kingdom ever. We need to learn to live in that freedom. Not a need to learn, but an invitation to live in the freedom he has brought, to learn to jump higher and reach wider. And we have to trailblaze. We so enjoy seeing all our young people on a Sunday morning going to their junior church groups, don't you? Let's let them learn about a bigger jump and a broader living in faith. Freedom that we're called to change into, to metamorphosize into, not just to work harder at, but freedom that we have been given. Freedom from the inside, freedom via the Holy Spirit to love and to serve one another. Our culture will say no, no. Our church culture will easily uh, err towards establishing boundaries and rules of saying who is in and who is out and who is holy and who is not. I think it was Miriam Swaffield described holiness. Um, how did she describe it this morning? It was on Twitter. It's not as a pair of white skinny jeans to be preserved. You know, they get, it gets really messed up really quickly and you only wear it for special occasions. I can't remember the opposite of what she said, but it basically meant, actually, if holiness is engaging. I'll find the tweet and I'll tell you later. This freedom comes naturally as we walk with the Spirit, but it's a newfound, it's change. Paul in chapter five has said, you can either settle back into the ways of the flesh, the ways that we know we can keep in the jar and jump like fleas. Or we can settle back into it, or we can be passive and fruitless, or we can step on. The danger of, of reading just chapter six is if you put it out of context with the, the first five chapters that precede it, it just seems like a how-to and a do-more. There are seven things that he impresses upon us. 
to learn to live in this freedom. Uh, and it isn't, I'm not really into how-to sermons of self-help and, and do more and all that. But, but actually, there is that aspect very much. But it's always in the light of grace. It's always in the context of Jesus. It's always in the, the res- faithful response of saying, yes, Jesus, you've saved me, you've rescued me, your spirit is within me. How do I do this then? Don't put the cart before the horse. This isn't about being better and proving our worth to God, but the outflow of this new way of living. So in chapter six, brothers and sisters, it's all encompassing. Uh, I I do like the more modern translations which reflect uh, gender inclusion on these levels. It's not just brothers, brothers and sisters. I have to say that are we up for this challenge? I hope you are. Let's jump higher and wider and walk further. Brothers and sisters, verse one, if someone is caught in a sin, You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Gulp. Gulp. Maybe Paul puts this first because this is the most challenging. Or this is the most fraught with potential difficulty. Isn't it the case that that's the last thing we want someone to do? Put yourself in the context of when you have let yourself down and you know that you've caught yourself in a sin. Whatever that may be that springs to mind, something inward or something outward. Something to your husband, child, wife, business colleague, um, neighbor, uh, something of the heart, something of an action. Think about that. The last thing you want someone to do, me or one of your sisters or brothers in the church and kind of go, aha, let me just point this out for you. You've just sinned. Who'd relish that? I certainly wouldn't. It's the last thing we want. We, we kind of want to maintain a life of respectability and we don't actually want anyone sticking their noses into our business. True? But Paul says there's, there's something beyond this. He said that we're called together not just as individuals, but we're now the people of God. We're not just to live our lives as my business is my business and not yours. I will choose to be part of a church family, choose to be part of the people of God on my terms. Thank you very much. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now, I'm not suggesting we, we adopt a heavy shepherding or kind of coming and sifting through every aspect of your life, not at all. But I am talking about, this is the radical thing of learning to jump bigger, wider, further. This is a, real, a really pertinent issue for discipleship in the West. Of do we like and do we relish, probably not, are we willing to allow sisters and brothers in the church that we whom respect to speak into our lives? I mean, it starts with me. It's not a proactive, we'll do it to others, but actually we count ourselves out. But I also know this is a dangerous step for us because I I know there are times in in pastoral ministry, in church life, where situations crop up and circumstances happen where someone chooses a choice and a life and a a behavior pattern that has become habituated and and is, is kind of clearly not how the Lord is saying this is the way of freedom and life and fullness. 
This is not how, this is kind of sitting in the jar as a flea, jumping in the world's choices, not the freedom and the life that Christ has brought. I know that for a fact that when I've challenged people gently in love, drawn close to people, there are usually, well, there are four options, and the, the first one is a welcome, a welcome kind of intervention. Yeah, I can count probably on the fingers of one hand. Thank you so much for speaking to me. It's bottom of the list, sisters and brothers. The other three on the top of the list, I'm not quite sure the order, but quite high up is people will leave the church. How dare you? You judgmental, arrogant, so-and-so. Who are you? Or they bear a grudge. And there's a festering kind of begrudgement. Or, or there's actually a, a kind of, I've not seen this too often, thankfully, but sometimes a kind of, I'll get you back, a revenge. I'll just be watching and waiting. It is a challenge because we live in a culture where we say we must tolerate and respect each other. Of course we must tolerate and respect each other. Bear with one another out of love to respect that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, precious and honored and cherished by God, that we should build up and encourage and nurture and seek to equip in the ways of righteousness. But it seems here that there's also a sense in this being called together to champion each other if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Sometimes we may absolve ourselves by saying what we call respect, Paul may call a lack of love. I mean, an easy illustration for that is, is to say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. You just be true to yourself. I mean, this is, this is slightly simplistic, overly simplistic, but it makes the point. You know that classic example, you've got a small child and they're by the fire and you say, you know, keep away from the fire. And the child says, no, I know best. We'd intervene, wouldn't we? Because love says we don't want to let harm happen. Now, the difficulty of that illustration is that we're not in a parent-child relationship. That sisters and brothers in Christ stand before the Lord. That even as a pastor, uh, I, I recognize that the Lord is the great shepherd of the flock. I'm called to some authority in that. I'm not there to, to micromanage and to heavy shepherd and to, to be on the lookout and ooh, just to point out. But there is that sense here that, that we should champion each other, that we should, in Christ-like Christian relationship, moved and called and united. He's already set the groundwork for this in chapter 3. So in Christ, we're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Are we being clothed with Christ? There is neither Jew or Gentile, save or free, neither male or female. You're all one in Christ. In other words... If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. In other words, who we are impacts each other. It seems to be one of the strong motifs of Jesus in Luke, chapter 15, that when there is a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, there's an active searching to restore, to find, to claim and bring home. 
It's easy to talk about the principle, it's harder to work it out in practice. But I would just say on this, I'm not setting you loose to become nitpickers and straining out gnats to swallow camels or to check that you've not got a plank in your eye and picking out a bit of sawdust in someone else. But I am asking you to consider and ask the Lord to let you see, but also to let others speak into your life for the sake of Christ. Wow, what a change. What would church look like, I wonder? What would the people of God look like if we embraced these how-tos, these consequences, the so-whats of the freedom that Christ has won for us? Secondly, and I'll rattle through these a little bit faster, we are called, uh, sorry, the last point I made on that is, is, is just worth uh, highlighting is, is, but watch yourselves or you will also be tempted. Karl Barth said the greatest uh, sin, all sins are encapsulated in the greatest sin, which is pride. There's a lot of truth in that, that all sin stems from pride, says Karl Barth. He means by that by saying, I know better than God, ultimately. But pride is implicit in so many places. But also I think there's the aspect of, uh, of, of sometimes um, you've got to be careful if you go pursuing the lost and being where people have uh, become stuck in sin that you don't fall likewise. Uh, I always remember Duncan and Anna who have um, been part of the church, they, they worked in the, the sex, uh, they didn't work in the sex industry, they went... Um, <laughs> make that clear, uh, they were in Thailand working to, amongst those who were in the sex industry. And there was that real kind of uh, having to be really clear because the, you know, particularly for Dunk, I'm not saying with Anna, but for guys particularly, we, a lot of stuff happens when we see, and if you're walking down the street and there's naked people in shop windows, that affects you. To walk in the spirit. We have to be careful that we don't become judgmental, prideful, superior when we're, caught, we're speaking lovingly to one another that we're not finding ourselves being tempted and falling. Chapter, uh, second thing that Paul encourages us to do, and this is radical change making, care for other people. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? Carry each other's burdens in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Carry each other's burdens. Not I expect you to carry mine. I mean, verse 5 makes that clear. Uh, Each should carry their own load. But Paul is saying this. Everyone is to carry their own, but we're also to, to bear our own burdens, but also to make space in our lives to help others. Sometimes we'll have more capacity than that, for that than at others. I mean, talk to someone with a newborn child or family. I mean, there's not a huge capacity in that or in different circumstances, life or, but there are, there is always opportunity to look beyond ourselves. Wonderfully, this fulfills the law of Christ. Chapter five, verse 14 says this, for the entire law is summed, is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. How do we break the ceiling and the jar and the learned condition? Learn to carry someone's burdens. Not to be overburdened, not to take theirs when it's theirs to carry, but to share that life, to care for other people. That we are called in this active freedom to love others, 
to love our neighbor, particularly a stranger, particularly an outsider, particularly someone on the edge, someone who's marginalized, someone who's different. See if you can find someone like that this week. Kate was just telling me of an example. Can I use this story? It's on social media. A, a, a Chinese lady, I think, stole a bike and was found cycling to Stowe and it ended up in Burford. And, and Facebook is awash with all that. Someone's stolen a bike, how dare they? What's Camden coming to? We must put the shutters up. Maybe in the midst of not saying what stealing a bike is right, but how do you then reach out to that person in love? I don't know the answer to that, but gee, the Holy Spirit does. Third one, chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. Walk humbly with other people. Uh, so 3 to 4 says this. Um, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. You know the sketch, but it's worth showing. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. <laughs> Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> Thank you. You did, man! Yeah, we're not doing Benny Hill now, just, uh, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Do you know, as, as um, British Christians, forgive me if you're not in that bracket, but I think it's it, from my travels around the world, we do love to rank ourselves. It's either by age, by gender, by wisdom and experience. Not saying that we don't honor our elders, we don't respect and learn from different, from men or women. But we do carry class and race and ethnic and economic distinctions of the world into our community. And we jump like fleas. Remember, Paul is saying change. Freedom, kingdom change, breaks those barriers. It's not just wishful thinking. Uh, again, I refer back to, to chapter 3. We're baptized into Christ, we've clothed ourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, the racial distinctions. There's neither slave or free. It could be to do with caste, it could be to do with social status, it could do, be to do with economic 
could be to do with upper class, middle class, lower class, slave or uh, gentle, slave or free. There's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Walk humbly with other people. There isn't a pecking order. We are set free from selfish ambition. It's impossible to kneel before the cross and think, I'm better than my neighbor. Because on the cross, Christ died for all. While we were still enemies, while we were still broken and lost, he was reclaiming us. None of us have anything on the credit sheet there. Fourthly, to this is slightly um, challenging to say as a preacher and church leader, uh, the fourth thing is to honor those who teach and lead. Verse six, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. There is a call, and it's in the New Testament, and I don't sort of big myself up on this, but sit humbly with it. But there is a call to honor leadership. And that includes encouragement and friendship and support. And I'm thankful, and you're very faithful in this church, of, of providing for Phil and I and Tim and Kate in our living, that we are set apart by you, for you, amongst you. We are called by God, and you recognize that. And bless us with a salary to do this. That's amazing. And we're so thankful for that. And it's part of your working out of this freedom. I thank you for that and encourage you to keep doing it. <laughs> I declare the bias. But actually it is. It is one of those things that the scriptures teach. Fifthly, uh, of making good choices, chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Make good choices because there are consequences to foolish choices. If we indulge, chapter 5, in the acts of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, and so forth, hatred, you kind of can work out the implications. If you're sowing discord, it's not going to be leaving for harmony in a family or a church life. If you act out of hatred, it's going to cause, there's going to be a kickback to you because people aren't going to treat you generally with kindness and love if you're hating them. Modern phrase, hating on them. I don't like that phrase. If you are perpetually drunk, you're likely to hurt yourself, short-term or long-term. Talk to any nurse. Isn't it true, Karen? A&E on a Saturday night, what's the predominant cause? Alcohol and the societal costs and so forth, but the long-term impacts on your liver, on your health, upon society in general. So wisely, make good choices. If we surrender to the sinful flesh, we are at odds with the Holy Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. I refer you to my message in the chapter before of the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, forbearance and kindness and goodness, etc. Choose those. Chapter, uh, the sixth thing, persevere in doing good. Uh, chapter six, verse nine. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we do 
not give up. Persevere in doing good. This is a cultural challenge. Who has got irritated because you've got one of those little flowers or those timer devices on your PC or your phone recently and you thought, how dare my internet take so long to load something? We're kind of like, you know what I mean? Instant society, instant fix. If it's not now, if it's not within a moment, we move on, bored, boring, tedious, stimulate ourselves in a different way. We're not that good now, generally. Again, generalization. At investing for fruitfulness with time. If, you're, if you find yourself being impatient, buy a tub and fill it with compost and grow some herbs. Because <laughs> it's not immediate. You need to plan. Think, I'm going to plan for a dinner party and I'm going to have some basil. And you're not going to nip to the co-op and buy the pre-cut, pre-packaged, right off the shelf, just there. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't use the co-op or those supermarkets. But it's just an illustration of slowing down, of thinking, how much are you caught up with the immediate, the sudden? And if it's not sudden, it's not worth it. Fruitfulness takes time. Elaine, uh, who was baptized, had a phrase, she used it in a testimony, and it struck me when she said, grow where you're planted, Grow where you're planted. The grass may be green or somewhere else, but it still needs mowing. Grow where you're planted. That a farmer or a craftsman knows that something that is master crafted doesn't just happen suddenly. Most of our students now are thinking revision is awful and it takes a lot of effort to get a good grade. It does but persevere in doing good. There is a lot of effort needed for not much return sometimes, but it's still right to do. I think that's true in prayer. God's not answered my prayer yesterday, today. Give up. Persevere. Someone I've invited to or wanted to talk about Jesus with or invited to some event, hasn't, oh, move on. Lost cause. Persevere in doing good. Even when it seems little fruit, these things take time. Persevere in doing good. And finally, uh, chapter, the, the, thing, the thing he says in chapter 6, verse 10, seventh thing, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Big ask, hey? Serve other people. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. John Wesley uh, said this, do all the good, I mean, goodness me, this is a prayer, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you can. Eek. <laughs> Serve other people. Do good. Paul is writing in these seven Magnificent, seven enlarging, seven stretching, seven liberating ways. Doing good to all defines the scope of what the freedom looks like that Jesus has won. 
Is it going to be instant? No. Is it going to be hard effort? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Because it's what the Spirit is nurturing and brooding and longing for and drawing us into the outworkings of the gospel. Of a community of faith who look like this and are shaped by this and who jump higher and wider and explore further the fullness of the kingdom of God. I wonder, do you want that? I pray so. I pray so. And so let's pray together.